Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, once more. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Hear now the word of the living God. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the living God, and we say thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Now, O Lord, we pray that we might receive your word as the oracles of God. We pray that we might sit beneath your word, that it might water our souls, that we might be thankful that we have the opportunity to hear it unhindered this day. Impress upon our minds and hearts, O Holy Spirit, our need for Christ and his willing offer for us to come to the triune God through him. In Jesus' name. Amen. We just sang a line from Horatius Bonar who wrote these words, I looked to Jesus and I found in him my star, my sun. And in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. It could be argued that 1 Peter is a book about traveling days. Here's what I mean, if you recall, if you were with us months back when we began this book, we saw that Peter says that believers are strangers, aliens, exiles. We are pilgrims. We are travelers. We are headed home, as it were. Christ is with us. He is present with his church. The word makes clear. And yet, we're traveling through lands that are not our home. We're traveling among people who don't look like the people born from above. The ways of this world are so often different from what we see in the scriptures. And yet, as Bonar writes, we savor the light of life. We walk in him until these traveling days are done. Peter gives us further instruction in First Peter chapter 4 for our traveling days. He says this at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. This phrase, the end of all things is at hand, as we'll see in just a moment, frames the entire paragraph that we have before us. We're told at least five things in this text to do and to be because the end of all things is at hand. Notice the very next word, therefore. But the end of all things is at hand, therefore, be 
And then we get a list of things that we are to be and to do. But Peter's not the only one who uses this phrase or this idea that the end of all things is at hand. You could see it in the writings of Paul. Just one example. Turn over to Romans chapter 13. There we read in similar words. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Paul does this as well in Philippians The writer or preacher of Hebrews does this in Hebrews chapter 10. James does it in James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. There's a regular theme in the New Testament that the end of all things is at hand, and so certain things ought to be done. Certain things ought to be said. Certain things ought to be what we look like. But of course, these words were written some 1,900 years ago. This has caused a variety of interpretations to come to be. I would submit to you that the clearest understanding of phrases like this is that the end of all things being at hand is the status of every Christian in every age. We're not looking at a discussion of end times views here. Peter's not trying to give us a date or if you you were a chart of how to interpret the end of days. No, from the ascension of Christ until his return, it is the end. It is the last days. And our lives ought to look like certain things because his coming is soon. Peter could say in the first century, his coming is soon. We can say in our day, his coming is soon. And should the Lord tarry for quite a few more centuries, the people, our great-great-great-great-grandchildren who are in Christ can say, the end is at hand. And this then is the focus. Our traveling days are almost done. The end is at hand, so Peter says, therefore. Therefore. What follows comes with the implication of living in the end. You know, so often in the Christian life, we think as we get older, I've meditated on this over the last few years, some of you consider me very young, some of you consider me old, but as you get older, many of you in this room can attest, you begin to think about how life is fleeting, life is passing, but really life is short for an infant, just as for an 80-year-old. Life is short for the Christian who is age 12 all the way to the Christian who is 112. We are told, through Peter's pen, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the end is at hand, therefore, number one, we are to have watchful prayer. Watchful prayer. Peter says it this way, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. The first category for the Christian to consider because the end of all things is at hand is watchful prayer. Before we look at that word watchful, notice what Peter says. He says, serious and watchful in your prayers. The word serious 
could be translated sensible or with sound judgment. How's your prayer life? Is it sober? Is it a prayer life of sound judgment? Was it a sensible prayer life, or as this version renders it, a serious intent in your prayers? The number one task that Christians are often called to do in the New Testament is to pray. We see widows in 1 Timothy who are considered useful to the church of God because they pray. Serious and yet watchful. One chapter later, Peter will use this idea as well. Look at 1 Peter 5 verse 8. There he says, be sober, be vigilant, or watchful, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Traveling days, and yet the road is not always free from danger, is it? So be watchful. Now what is watchfulness? It's a rather lost art in the modern 21st century evangelical church, it seems. But let me read to you a couple of descriptions of watchfulness from brothers centuries ago. John Owen describes watchfulness this way. He was a Puritan in the 1600s. Quote, a universal carefulness and diligence, exercising itself in and by all ways and means prescribed by God over our hearts and ways, the baits and methods of Satan, the occasions and advantages of sin in the world that we not be entangled. End quote. Another Puritan, Thomas Brooks, quote, watchfulness includes awaking, arousing up of the soul. It is a continual, careful observing of our hearts and ways in all the turnings of our lives that we still keep close to God and his word. How often has a motion of your heart seemed strange to you, seemed difficult or sinful to you that it causes you to go to prayer? Lord, my heart just engaged in a sinful thought. I'm bringing this to you. Watchfulness is, yes, watching for the bait of Satan, as it were, in John Owen's words, but it's also watching our own hearts before the Lord in prayer. One other definition, John Downham, also writing in the same era, quote, watchfulness of the soul is when we do not sleep in our sins, being rocked in the cradle of carnal security, but shake off our drowsiness by unfeigned repentance, rising up to newness of life. End quote. These are but just a few. A prayer life that is serious, sober, and watchful. We often think of praying as the prayer list, and we should pray. There is a weekly prayer list on our website for members. Please pray for the needs of others. But the scriptures would have us to be watchful, firstly, over our own hearts. Lord, my heart is gravitating towards this lust, this issue of pride, this idolatry. I bring it to you before I even express it with my body or my words. Watchful, because the end of all things is at hand. Let us not, as followers of Christ, be lulled into thinking that time is something that we have a lot of. And even if we are given a lot, it is but a vapor, as the scripture says, in comparison to the eternal life that we shall live with Christ if we are within him. 
So because the end of all things is at hand, firstly, the people of God should be serious and watchful in our prayers. We should have watchful prayer. Brothers and sisters, consider this week, just this week ahead, how you may be watchful in your prayers. Watchful for the baits of Satan. Watchful in your own hearts when you see the rising of the old man coming up again. When pride or arrogance or idolatry come, pray. Take it to the Lord. Be watchful in your prayers. But you know, Peter says there's another characteristic for us because the end of all things is at hand, and that is secondly, fervent love. Fervent love. Boys and girls, that word fervent, maybe we don't use that word a lot nowadays. Serious, regular, devoted kind of love. Fervent love. Notice what he says. Verse 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. Peter's already dealt with love for the brethren, hasn't he? If you go back to chapter 1, verse 22, it's a regular theme. Love for brothers and sisters in the faith. But Peter adds something to it, doesn't he? Look at the next phrase. And above all things, have fervent love for one another for... Love will cover a multitude of sins. Now here he is quoting, almost by way of paraphrase, from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. Peter's pulling from the wisdom literature, the Old Testament, and saying we should have fervent love for one another because love will cover a multitude of sins. Now what does that mean for love to cover a multitude of sins. James will do the same thing in James chapter 5, verse 20. In multiple places, the writers of the New Testament say, one of the realities of love between brothers and sisters in Christ is that love covers a multitude of sins. Well, of course, this doesn't mean that love provides forgiveness or atonement for sins. I do a bad deed, so I go love well, and that sort of covers it, as if we're talking about atonement A covering for sin. This is not atonement for sins. What is meant by covering is a means of removing it from view. Listen, if I love you fervently and you love me fervently, the ways that we irritate one another or sin even against one another become less focused in our hearts and our eyes. Love fervently within the body has a way of removing all of the ways that we sin from one another. It doesn't provide eternal forgiveness for sins. Let me put it to you this way. If you regularly remember the challenges that you've had with others in this body, is it possible that you don't have fervent love for them? Because you're lacking that covering that James and Peter and the wisdom writers speak of. Let's add Paul to the mix. How does Paul describe love in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7? It doesn't keep a what? Record of wrongs. 
Just real practical this morning from the Word of God. If you regularly remember the challenges, issues, impatiences, all of those words that you've had with other brothers and sisters in this body, if you regularly remember those things, it seems like there's not a lot of love covering a multitude of sins. This isn't to say that sin doesn't need to be dealt with properly. It's not to say that sometimes you don't have to go to someone. The way that the scripture tells us to to deal with a sin in a particular way. But it is to say when the overarching view of the body of Christ is that the end is at hand. And in addition to being watchful in our prayers, we love each other so much that it's as if there's a covering for a multitude of sins in our midst. And one of the reasons we know why 1 Peter 4.8 is not speaking of covering in terms of forgiveness, of atonement, is because that wouldn't square with the rest of Scripture. You see, the Scripture is crystal clear on this. Sins are forgiven. Sins are covered. Atonement is made for sin through the shed blood and righteousness of Christ alone. You know, part of this text, friend, is an in-house discussion. Peter, writing 2,000 years ago, is telling Christians, hey, the end is at hand. Jesus is coming soon. Peter, for four chapters, has said, you're pilgrims walking through this world, but regularly he's reminded us that a day is coming. A day is coming. Here he does it again. So it's an in-house discussion. There are certain things that we ought to do and certain things that we ought to be because the end is at hand. But maybe you're here and you need to understand from this passage itself that just loving other people well is not going to atone for your sins against God. Prior to our text, Peter has made crystal clear that it is the death of of Christ that is the payment for sins. That it is His blood that was shed to provide atonement for sins. God, the eternal God, is in the right as creator and caretaker of all things to set a moral standard, a reflection of His character and nature, and He has done so. Creating humanity as the pinnacle of His creation, Adam fell in the garden and we like him. We in him even. When every human being sins in small ways in our eyes and in big ways. But God sent his son, the eternal son of God, who put on flesh and walked in our streets but didn't sin. Walked around the mess that is sinful humanity and never once gave in. And then in his early 30s, he went to the cross. And as he died there, yes, his life draining from his body, as he died there, he experienced agonies in body and soul as God poured out judgment on him in the place of everyone who would ever trust in him. And this is the true and ultimate atonement for sins. And listen, friend, you are in covenant with God. 
either in Adam as a lawbreaker or as in Christ who kept the law in your stead, who bled to pay for all of your sins. This is atonement. Scripture is clear. Have you embraced Christ? Have you fled to him? The kind of a covering that is talked about here is the kind of covering among people who've received the forgiveness of sins. We've been given new life in the Spirit, and we're told, hey, be watchful in prayer and look around you. Christ has provided you brothers and sisters in the faith, and as you travel, have fervent love for love covers. It keeps a whole lot of sins from getting in the way of one another's relationship. So often in the Christian life, people want to know what they, what they should do. <laughs> I, want to, I want to do things for God. He saved me, I want to do things for him. Okay? Be watchful in your prayers. Love your brothers and sisters fervently. Yeah, I know, but I, I want to do things. <laughs> I mean, I get all that, but I want to do things. Okay? Watchful prayer, you got that down. Fervent love, you got that down. None of us does. Then, how about number three, contented hospitality? Contented hospitality. Look at verse nine. Be hospitable to one another, and then here's that phrase, boys and girls, without grumbling. You know your parents have to be told not to grumble, just like you. We have a phrase in our house. It's really a quoting of a Bible verse, do all things without grumbling or disputing. It's not just boys and girls that have to be told that. It's moms and dads and, dare I say it, grandmoms and granddads. What are we to do without grumbling? Or what are we to do with contentment? Well, we're to be hospitable. Let's look at that. That's the third. It's interesting, the word hospitality I want to press us just a little bit this morning because when you hear that word, we think of several things. Maybe you think the meals at church. Maybe you think, I just need to have people from our church over into my house a lot. That's hospitality. And I think those are on the outskirts, yes, of hospitality. But the word hospitality that Peter uses actually means love of stranger. Love of stranger. And as you trace that word through the pages of Scripture, you see two main ways that the early church was hospitable. The first is group hospitality, sharing their houses so that the church could meet. Romans 16, 3 through 5. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. Philemon 2. But you also see another kind of hospitality. That was mission hospitality. Acts 16, 15, or 3 John 7 through 11. There you see traveling Christians having lodging in the home of other Christians who were, in many cases, strangers to them. So please, by all means, do what the early church did in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4. They broke bread together. Do that regularly. Open your home for the people in the church. 
But love of stranger almost implies in 1 Peter 4, hey, the end of all things is at hand. You're pilgrims. When you go to other places, Christians there should be able to support you. But we're to do it with contented hospitality. I remember for several years walking through a Middle Eastern country on one to two week mission trip endeavors. And one of the things that you noted, that was noted there, even among unbelievers, but particularly among believers, dusty roads in some of these villages, no hotels, sort of almost like the first century. You'd be walking all day, you'd be traveling, and you may come to a home where a believer would put you up for the night. It just was part of the culture that you cared and you were hospitable to strangers. I remember one night walking in the dark, I'll leave all the details out, with a group of individuals being told that we couldn't stay somewhere. And a man caught us on the road, realizing that we likely were hopelessly lost and not allowed to use flashlights for security reasons, turned the other way and walked with us for two hours to get us where we needed to go. You see, in the first century, in Peter's view, this, this idea was really the love of stranger. You provided for brothers and sisters in these kinds of ways. Today, particularly in our culture, there are hotels. There are cars. What if the church of Jesus Christ was increasingly known as a people who opened their homes not only for one another, but also for people who were either on mission for God or opening their homes for the cause of the church. It has been sweet the times that we've had theology conferences here in this place or other kinds of events to have men stay in our home to learn from them. They're strangers to us, really. I mean, some of them, we read their books, we hear their sermons, to have them at the breakfast cereal table. Hey, this is what we eat. Actually, in the cereal case, the person requested it. <laughs> Increasingly, beloved, let us be a people that show hospitality, love of stranger, and we do it without grumbling. The early church evidently needed to be told to do this without grumbling. One of the early documents of the church, the Didache, in chapter 4 Verse 7 says this, do not hesitate to give, nor grumble while giving. <laughs> but it's not just the, only, the early church that has to be told to do certain things without grumbling. You see, if the end of all things is at hand, and Christ has his emissaries roaming about this Babylon of the world, sharing the message, we ought to look for ways for our home, for our resources, to be a place. What a precious Reality for a pastor to hear that homes are being opened for travelers on the Lord's Day. This happens in our place, our church. 
Sometimes first-time visitors are invited to homes. Let's keep it up. Let's do it well. Let's obviously work through whatever kinds of ways we need to do to make people feel comfortable. But the end of all things is at hand. And so, what does Peter say? Be watchful in your prayers. Love one another fervently and show love of stranger. Hospitality in a contented way. But there's more here. Look at verse 10. And as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I think a fourth marching order, if you will, for the end of days is stewarding service. Stewarding service. Boys and girls, to steward something is to take care of it well, to use it well. If I let you borrow something and you steward it, you're using it well and you're caring for it well. So Peter would have us say, or hear, that we're to use the gifts that God has given to us of service well. Now, why do I call this stewarding service? Well, let's look closely at this phrase. And as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. The Greek word there underlying that word minister is the word that we get our word deacon from. Many translations actually render this instead of ministering, as serving. I think that's probably an even better translation. For instance, the modern English version does it. The ESV, the New American Standard. Think serving here, and there's a reason for that. Because as we'll see in our next verse, even though it can be said that we minister to one another, the ministry is separate, as we'll see. Serving one another, however the Lord has gifted you. Think serving. Now notice the text says, as each one has received a gift. This points us back to other texts in Scripture, doesn't it? Like 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. The gifts that you have come from God. You've received them. Now you may grow in them. You may grow in your ability to use them, but you didn't put them there. They're gifts of God to you. We are to be good stewards. And notice how the body is described here. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If you translated that really literally, it would be the many-colored grace of God. Right? The church of Jesus Christ isn't just a pencil drawing. No, the Lord has filled it in with all kinds of gifts, like colors on a page. There are a variety of ways God gifts his people in his grace. And notice, in addition to needing to be a good steward of a gift that you've received, it says that we should serve it or minister it to one another. Listen, the the using of your gifts is for the good of the body. It shouldn't regularly be in your mind I want to use my gift. It should be, I want the body to be served. You see, the focus that Peter calls us to is serving one another. There's a body focus here. Our service should always be subservient to the Lord and to others. We're to steward those gifts well. Peter doesn't give us a list so often we want a list, don't we? Well, what are the gifts? 
Well, there are examples given in passages like 1 Corinthians 12, and we would do well to consider these. But here, Peter just has in view, hey, we're serving one another. Watchful prayer, fervent love, contented hospitality, stewarding service. There's plenty for us to, quote, do. There's one other thing. Look at verse 11. Peter then says this, If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. A fifth component is this, publicly tended. Publicly tended. The word tended, boys and girls, it's what a shepherd does. He tends the sheep. He cares for them. We need to look closely at verse 11 because it might be easy to read over this and think that it's just a further description of verse 10. Let's look closely. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Let me tell you where I'm going and then let us walk there together. I think verse 11 is about elders and deacons. You could make application of it to others. But verse 11 is about public tending of the sheep. By the way, this was the view of Puritans like Matthew Poole, early Baptists like John Gill. Listen to what John Gill says about this phrase, if anyone speaks. Quote, this is an application of the above general rule to a particular case, the public ministry of the word. For that is here meant, if any man speak, not in any manner or on any subject, not in a private way or about things natural and civil, but in public and concerning divine things, let him speak. And Gill is not the only one. Now, It's fine for some Puritans and some early Baptists to take that view, but what about the text? If anyone speaks, and then notice what is given next. Let him speak as the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? Could be translated the words of God or the utterances of God. Well, let's just do a quick survey of Scripture In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, Moses is pictured as having been given words by God to speak to God's people. Romans 3, verse 2, using this idea of oracles, the Jews, as the Old Testament people of God, were given the oracles of God. Hebrews 5, 12 indicates that immature believers need a public teacher to give them the word or oracles of God. And this phrase, oracles, finds its root in Numbers chapter 24, verse 4. The words of God. It's pretty clear that what is meant here is, if any man who speaks, speaks, let him remember that he is giving the word of God. It's best then to see verse 11 not as a description of what we all do, but as a description that in addition 
to the end of all things being its hand, requiring us to watchfully pray and to fervently love and to have contented hospitality and to use our gifts. But for the churches of Jesus Christ, at the end of all days, to be marked with men who speak the word of God as if they are speaking the word of God. What implication? Every sermon ought to be focused on transmitting the word of God. Now, the word of God, boys and girls, is finished. We don't don't need to ask, Lord, give us more words. We need more revelation. No, we, we have the finished revelation of God. So the preachers of God today that Christ commissions through his church are simply mouthpieces through which God gifts his church with his word. The word is really the ultimate gift. Yes, Ephesians 4 says that preachers and teachers are gifts to the people, but really they're gifts to the people because through them, hopefully, they get the word of God. So publicly tended, if any man speaks, speak as if he's giving the oracles of God. This is weighty. We ought to remember that when it is proclaimed aright, the preaching of the word of Christ is the word of Christ. So verse 11 helps us to see, I think, in distinction from the others, that there is also a public ministry that occurs. Now notice the next phrase. If anyone ministers... Now, is this just going back to verse 10? Because there we're told to minister. Again, I think it'd be a better translation to say serve one another. But here we use that word again. And it's the word deacon. You could translate it this way. If anyone deacons, that's what deacons do. They serve the body. They tend the sheep by serving the body. If anyone ministers, serves, deacons, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Given that it is already addressed in general before, the idea of serving, ministering in this translation, and given that the first part of this verse has an office in view, it's pretty clear that the ones being referenced here in the second part of this verse are primarily office-bearing servants, the deacons the deacons. So we could translate verse 11 this way. If anyone speaks, preaches, proclaims, let him do so as the word of God. If anyone deacons, serves the church in a recognized way, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Deacons have abilities that God supplies. They won't be able to do their work without God granting them the ability. As mentioned in a previous congregational meeting, Lord willing, in the next few months, our church will hear further nominations for elders and for deacons. The reality of the offices of the church of Christ is not simply, well, we've got to organize ourselves, so let's find some people to do it. It's almost as if here, and particularly in Ephesians 4, Christ has a plan. And down through the ages, one of the ways that he's present with his people 
is that by his spirit, through the workings of his church, he gives his word to his people through the public preaching of the word. That's primary. The public preaching of the word. And he sees to it that his sheep are tended by deacons that he has given supply of grace for. And then notice the final outcome. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is at least verse 11, but it's likely a summary of all that's come before in our paragraph. Do I pray watchfully so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ? Do I love fervently that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ? Do I seek to be hospitable without grumbling so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ? Is that my view when I use my gift? Is that our view when the word is preached and when the body is served? That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then we're given this phrase, to whom belong the glory and the dominion? We don't have time to flesh this out this morning, sadly, but notice who has the dominion. Not us. We don't need to seek dominion. God has dominion. And then there's that famous word, a word that we so often pass over so often in our prayers. Amen. This shows us really that this is the end of a section. This is the end of a section. We're going to move on to other things in verse 12. But it's a word that means, may it be so. Yes, truly, indeed. So, brothers and sisters, because the end of all things is at hand, and we know who has dominion, and because our souls desire that King Jesus get glory throughout all the ages, there are things for us to do. And let's do them with his glory and the good of his body in our minds. Let's pray. Living God, we pray that you would help us to pray watchfully, to love fervently, to be hospitable, contentedly, to be good stewards of the gifts you've given to us, and to be publicly tended well. Help us. We are weak, and as even this passage shows us, we cannot do this without you. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.